Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. What I want to do is talk about something which is a little bit different than when Dennis and I first decided it, because it was before COVID. So we've altered the theme a little bit because one of the one of the issues is we have struggled, but the other side is we've really noticed how important community is. So I'm going to talk today to you about a number of things. I'm going to talk to you about the the power of trust and respect. So why did I call it the power of respect? And also about human connection. I'm going to talk about leading for engagement because as community leaders, often it's influential power you have, um, but you can get almost more done with that than any other type of power. I want to talk about the next normal because we're in a situation where things change constantly and we're not quite sure what's coming up. And so there are different ways to navigate that. It's quite different to crisis because it's ongoing. And the fourth thing is that we can talk about social capital and community engagement because we know just how critical that is. So I want to start with a little story. I live in Orgate and it's a lovely little um, city uh, in the hills, in the Adelaide Hills, and I can live in a cottage and it's lovely and green. But the big thing is I know my community. And so I know people when I go down the street and I feel that I belong and I feel very safe here. So you can imagine my um, surprise when I saw one of these signs that is part of the police system where they they put it in different areas it was an, an alarmed process um, a couple of years ago and I went into the council and I said have we had a problem here because the first thing said um, lock your doors the second thing said uh, report all suspicious behavior and the third one had a number and she said no, um, this is just the thing that is being put around in, in council areas. And I said, well, do you realise the impact that has, how that frames how we see each other? And she said, well, we have to have the number. And I said, okay, so what if we had three screens, but they were different? What if the first screen said, isn't it great you live in such a good community? The second one said, isn't it terrific that if you need someone, you can count on the person next to you? And then the third screen can say, if we need help, then here's the number. And she thought about it. And I've been saying that whether it's um, in, in large community or um, local government situations or up to state government, framing is really critical to how we feel in the environment. So we have to get that right. So why does trust matter? I look at trust as not just a feeling, but also as a process and as something which is a, um, a tangible quantitative aspect. So one of the interesting things about trust is you can look at social trust. And when we look at that, it is a very strong predictor of a number of things. So it's a predictor of the national economic growth. In fact, it's more predictive than skill level, which is what lots of government money goes into. It's a strong predictor of life satisfaction and it's an inverse predictor as well, various things. So suicide level um, levels of mental um, health have a, a link to that sort of thing too. So what we have is in the countries where they are considered you know, happy, positive, trust is usually the first, the number one thing that is important to people there. 
and it has a number of loops. So in as a system, trust is a real driver in the system and it builds a lot around the system. And a couple of those drivers are really critical. So when we have high trust, we have higher levels of um, collaboration. People will depend on each other more. We have strong, strong values and they're more shared across the environment, across that system. And we have very strong feedback loops in terms of belonging and inclusion and acceptance. So trust is a massive um, area and it, impacts everything. It impacts the economic, the political, the social, the religious, all of the different aspects of societies. So why did I call it respect? There's a beautiful term that trust in action is respect. So it makes a difference to how people actually think, which fascinated me when I started looking at it. So let's have a look at an example. So we all know um, what it feels like to sit in a room where people have come along and you need to change something and they've come to consult you, but they really do consult you. They talk with you, they listen, they want to know what you feel. And when that happens, your brain does specific things. So it starts to, um, to as a group, build people's esteem and people start to feel valued and individually what you get is the brain starts to look for alignment so it's like um, meeting your friend's friend you will be automatically more positive you will try and look for things that match you know oh yes we like the same food yes we have the same outcome in mind and so what happens is you start to look much more long term in terms of building a process and building an outcome together that's going to work. So it's very different and it's very powerful. If you don't have that, that doesn't happen because on the other hand, we also probably all know what it's like to be talked at. And that's the consultation when people come along to tick a box. So they're talking at us and they're not really listening. So what the brain does then is it's, it completely changes the information that it takes. Instead of looking for things that are similar, it looks for differences. It looks for why the person is wrong. And it also closes down any kind of optimism that this is going to work. So we start to look for the, the problems in the situation. And the goal becomes very short term. We minimize contribution and we really just want to, we want it to stop. We want to end it. And if you look at a, a, a group, one of the problems of trying to get over a message to a group, once they have been um, placed in a situation where they don't feel like anything's listening, a number of things has happened at the group level too. So the first is what we realise is they disconnect from exploring ideas. They're not going to listen anymore. You can't reason, if you like. They also have a very strong feeling of unfairness. And that's one of the things that grows like a contagion in a group and it gets much stronger. And they also, if you ask them afterwards um, what the, the issue was, they only recall the negatives about what's being seen. So they're actually filtering out the sensible or the good information, and they're only filtering in those things that feed the bias or that they already have or the feeling they already have. And we probably know where that's happening in some places as well at the moment. So what you get then, is this really interesting human, almost chemical contagion. And in fact, it is a chemical contagion. So that's what I'm going to talk to you about next. It's the connection. How does that happen? How does the positive stuff happen? And how do the negative things happen as well? So humans are really fascinating the way that they connect. So let's think about a face-to-face -face meeting. What do we do? 
well, um, we look at each other, we smile, we share space because we come close enough to actually shake hands. So we touch because that's the socially acceptable way. And we speak to each other. We say hello and then we talk. And I want to take each one of those things apart. So those of you who've heard me before know that this is the part I love talking about to do with connection. So humans are absolutely hardwired to connect. So the first thing that happened then when we came together was we were starting to look at each other. And what you get is a number of chemicals uh, put into our body, oxytocin, dopamine, vasopressin, serotonin, because we start all sorts of neurons firing. So with smiles, we start mirror neurons subsets. We start von Economo neurons, they're called, and they are the trust neuron. So they start to connect task and um, emotion. So we've got thousands of things going on straight away in under a second when we interact. But we also know a lot more now about the other things that help us to connect, even if we don't look directly at each other. So one of the things that fascinates me is we've been looking over the last few years at resonance, at the fact that we oscillate. In fact, every cell in your body oscillates. And when people get together, they exchange chemicals and they also put them into the local environment. It's one of the reasons why we like getting together into a shared space. Won't it be wonderful when we can do that again more? So we resonate um, volatiles. And so with the volatilone, it's called, is up to about 1,840 chemicals that we can tell. We have something called a chemosphere where we can really read what's going on with other people because we're picking up all sorts of chemicals, hormones and endorphins and those kind of things. So we're reading a room, we're reading the group, and it's a very powerful and very accurate um, thing. And a lot of these things actually don't happen over a screen, but that's another discussion. We also know now that the voice is very important. So it sits at about three to eight hertz and we send those waves across and there's a part of our brain that oscillates at that level all the time to pick up a human voice. And when it's a voice you know, it connects to the socio-emotional areas, makes us feel connected, makes us feel warm and makes us feel like someone's listening. And now we also know that there's interpersonal neural synchronization. So we actually have brain to brain coupling. And I even get to look at that. And so that sets off all sorts of electrochemical um, waves in our brain, but also changes our whole neurophysiology. And it's an extremely powerful aspect. And that handshake, that's touch. So after doing a two-year study on the neurophysiological impact of touch and eye gaze on healing and trust, that sets off a completely different cascade of chemicals, the bonding. It's why a hug is so wonderful, although you don't generally hug people at work when you um, is a business situation, but it's a really powerful um, process. So all of those things together make us this real kind of electrosensory system that connects up with someone else. The other thing that I'll tell you about this that fascinated me was when I was looking at connection and decision making and complexity, what I found was that emotion, once you have an emotional connection, it actually changes the way we make complex decisions. And that's that, that unknown, unknown kind of decision. It changes the values that your brain uses to collect relevant information. It changes how, you, how long your lens is, how much you're thinking about your vision, and it also changes the amount of information. So you get much larger, um, I guess, distribution of information that you start looking for because you're not just looking for closure. So your radar gets better. We use that term a lot. Up goes the radar and we're better at finding out what we need to know <clears throat> and noticing things as well. 
And that means we can also get more creative. So as a group, when we've got all these lovely chemicals around, it really does start that, that flow, that creative flow. So one of the things then that we need to think about is how do we set that off? And it's different in different places. And the last thing I'd say directly on trust is that a fascinating aspect of that is that trust is, is unevenly distributed across the world. So it's a bit um, of an excuse if we just say, well, we don't trust anyone anymore anyway. We don't trust our governments. We don't trust our media. Because in some places, yes, we do. So if we look at it, the Anglo-Saxon communities, and that includes America, it includes Australia, the UK, we're actually quite low right now. So in our case, yes, it's true, about 30 to 40 percent. If we look at some of the places like the Nordic communities, they're right up at 60 to 90. And we'll talk for a little while about why that sort of thing um, happens up there. And also then the, at the bottom of the scale is kind of the South American aspect, and that's down to 10 to 15 percent. And different countries in the world then are distributed in between those. So one of the things then that we need to think about is the role of the leader in this. And it is absolutely critical because if we go back to things like the sign I talked about at the beginning, how you frame things and how you shape feedback loops in terms of connectivity and people being able to connect and trust is critical. So I did a lot of study, as Nick said, on leadership and we could be here all day. But the three main things that became really clear with very good leaders was that they had very clear purpose. They had really strong values that you could depend on no matter what. And they were pragmatic optimists. So they didn't say something was going to be very difficult or very easy. What they said was together, we'll ride the bumps, we'll figure it out and we'll get through it. So it's really important then in terms of how you lead and what you do. And the other aspect that they noticed is that it, it takes the time it takes. Sometimes it's very fast in a, a change situation and sometimes it's slower. And so you need to know that that's going to happen. It's not an even distribution of what happens. You don't just have a, a regular sale into something working well. Another thing that was fascinating was that impassioned, charismatic leaders that we would follow to the end of the earth, they actually have different brains. Their socio-emotional areas are, are more excitable. They fire very um, quickly. And there's even a really interesting experiment a couple of years ago that was done um, around some young people that pre leadership so they weren't let yet leaders they wired up couples of people and had a look and the people that were really able to excite the other person's brain um, and fire off their kind of socio-emotional areas and their keenness they're now watching them to see if they'll become tomorrow's leaders so another thing that happens then with leaders is that they have um, metacognitive maturation, if you like. So they are very, they're more mature in the social aspect of understanding other people, the emotional aspect of understanding themselves, but also task. They're good at what they do. And that's important. So can you become more charismatic, more um, engaging, more of a, an attaching leader? Yes, you can. The brain loves patterns and, and practice. So the more you do it, the better you get. So leading into the unknowable next, because what you've now got is your inner community situation and we don't know what's coming and what's happening. It's always been the case, but it's even more so at the moment. 
And it is different to a crisis situation. So I want you to remember three things in this. The first is that change causes anxiety. It is normal. We are cognitive sloths. So the brain's got patterns. It's why we've got habits. It doesn't want to make an effort. So when you have to change something, we naturally are anxious because the brain is going to have to work. It's actually going to have to break patterns and reform them over time. So the thing to remember is you're not doing anything wrong if you're feeling anxious or other people are feeling anxious. But what you've got there is energy. And the, the important thing to remember is if you're in a positive environment and that's one with trust and mutual respect and commitment, then that anxiety is going to be excitement. If you are in a negative environment where you don't have any control, there's no transparency, you, um, you don't feel like you know what's going on, you're going to be very guarded and then that anxiety becomes fear. Number two is what you end up with when you do work with people is you end up with this physical safety marker net. So if you've created that positive environment, then you've got this basically chemical um, lowering of anxiety. And what you end up with is it promotes hope and hope is critical in going forward when you're not quite sure what's going on and when there are issues. And it helps you and other people to manage kind of avoidance systems to try. I'd rather just wait this out or not not act. So that's really important to becoming resilient. The third thing is that respectful leading is very much felt as a shared journey because to trust is to take a risk. So what does that look like? When you engage people on their terms, you're very much showing respect because you need to think about how they are seeing this and what it means to them. Because we all see, we're all at a different stage of having a look at what something means to us and what the outcomes are going to be. The second thing is, if you're candid and if you're sincere, and we have parts of our brain that are very good at figuring that out very quickly, then you engender trust. If you're not sincere, we pick it up in a flash and then you're not trusted. And the third thing is, if you have integrity and consistency, even when it's difficult, the tough love type of aspect, then people will step into that unknown with you. So what becomes important then is when you're building and leading the healthy community, if you like, we can think about these things from the top and with the leader, and then we can think about these things in the community as well. So I had the, um, the lovely um, experience of when Hugh McKay released um, Reimagining Australia, I was um, up with him and he talked about his book and really talked about the importance of charity, um, of respect, of kindness, and the fact that it, it increases mental health and, and physical health in a community. And then what I talked about was what that means neuroscientifically, which is very much the sorts of things we've just been talking about, that wonderful increase and in all of those, those very positive ways that we interconnect and trust. And then the other aspect was from the top down. So as a system, because what we do know, what everybody watching this undoubtedly knows, is that from the bottom up, you've got the healthy community, but there's a basis of social capital. It's just as important as the private sector and the public sector. And in another kind of talk, we'd spend a long time talking about how you work with each of those three and how they interconnect because they are critical to a healthy society, not just community. So a couple of things to think about. The first is that 
communities are human complex adaptive systems. So they're interconnected by, by how people, what people know, they're shaped by shared goals. There's all sorts of things that are happening in that adaptive system. And the thing that you need to think about is it's from top down. So that's often the government, whether it's the local government, the state government, the head of the organisation. And then you also have bottom up. You can't ever shape a system just one way. You need both. And the top down is very important in aligning the rules and how those systems inside, how the, sorry, how the feedback loops in the system are going to be shaped. And the bottom up is where a lot of that work then actually bubbles. So you need both. And what we have then is there are goals that, are, that shape that system and rewards that shape the behaviour. So I want to give you a top-down example of, an ex of a place that I'm familiar with because I've worked there and been there, stayed there. So Finland is the happiest country in the world. So we get back to that Scandinavian level of trust, you know, the Nordic level of the 60 to 90 percent. And it's been called the happiest country in the world for about three years now. Um, if anyone knows Finns, they're quite um, quiet. So they tend to say, well, we are content rather than happy. But um, there's a really interesting drive of what that government overview is. So the role of that really top level government really does shape very strongly. So the government considers it is there to convert wealth to well-being. So that's the ultimate aim and it shapes every driver in the system. So what you then have is because they want to reduce causes of discontent rather than increase contentment to people, because that's very much up to us, they take care of the quality health, quality ageing, quality education, quality infrastructure. The art and environment is really critical to them and shaping AI properly as well. So what you have is the very basic things that people might worry about are, are largely taken away. So the goals that shape the system are efficient compassion. So that includes things like freedom, uh, the level of support that you have, the quality of life that you have, you lead, and so how well you, you connect, and human rights. So that's how much control have you got, how much respect do you feel, have you got time for your family, are you productive, all of those kind of things. And being productive is in lots of different ways. And if you ask people individually what's really important to them, then number one is trust. And then comes generosity, contentment and resilience. So it's a really interesting um, trickle down effect that that then sits at the bottom of that society as something which drives it. So bottom up, what do we need to do for practical public engagement? What do you what do you um, practice? So the first thing is it has to be a respectful process. I've been involved in lots of, of this here and overseas at different levels of getting people to be engaged. Because one of those things, if we flip back to, to Finland, is there is a large amount of public decision making around all of those things we talked about, around shaping education, health, um, but loads of those things are public, even infrastructure. So the first is it's a respectful process. And we've talked about why that's critical. If you lose respect in the group, you're finished. You don't go anywhere. The second, and we'll talk about what these are, is real delegation. So what does that actually mean? We talk about it a lot, but what do you need to give to have delegated properly? The third is a clear mandate and boundaries. So how do you shape them? And the fourth is empowerment. 
I've added another one as well, which is time commitment, because very often what I see is the people driving a process or watching the process don't understand sometimes how long some parts take, because as we say, some parts are very slow and then some parts speed up. So what is real delegation? You know that you've delegated if these things occur or that you've been delegated to. So people need to, the facts and they need to be able to find them from places that they think are trustworthy. They also need resources and part of that is being able to go and find the right facts. So have they got what they need to do what they're doing? Have they got permission? So can they experiment? You know, if, if something goes off the rails or it's not quite right, things shouldn't be pulled away from them straight away because they have to learn and they have to be able to act and decide so that they understand what happens um, and what happens well. Have they got responsibility? Because you need to defray some of that as well. Yes, ultimately, if a government gives you power or if the local government gives power, then they're responsible. But you share various parts of what that looks like down the stream. The cognitive bonus is that once you give people that, out come the complex thinkers. So they start to get engaged and you start to get really interesting outcomes. Clear boundaries are critical because if you don't have a clear mandate, then you don't know where to stop. You don't actually, you're not clear on exactly what you're doing. And you also need agreed non-negotiables. So what is it that we're not changing or we're not taking into account? And cognitively, it does a number of things. You know where you're going, you know where your patch is, and you can become a lot more creative. And it's because you manage expectations, but also people are able to give scope. So that, that that locking in means that you can become very innovative inside that that um, that boundary. Empowerment. It's a bit like innovation. It's kind of like an aerosol word. Of, it sounds fantastic, but people don't really know what it means. So when you empower the community to actually act and do something, the first thing is is something meaningful. So I have to feel like I add value if I'm part of that process. The second thing is I have to feel like I use my judgment. Do I have choice in that? The third is competence. So am I gonna get satisfaction out of this? Can I feel proud of what we're doing? The fourth is progress. So people have to see that things are moving forward. I have to know we're actually getting somewhere. And the fifth is that it aligns with my values. And so they're not suddenly shifting under me and I'm not quite sure why we're here anymore. So those things mean I will feel empowered. And when we talk about time commitment, it never happens in a straight line. So one of the interesting things is you need lots and lots of work beforehand in order to ground things, to change other things, for people to let go of the old. But once you get there, then you get traction. And once you get traction, then you hit this critical mass and off you go. So it can be very fast. So how do we shape that? How do we start to get that? And how do we see that it's working? So one of the things I want you to think about in this kind of systemic way of looking at it is that we get what we reward. So you're already rewarding what you see. Now, that might be how people feel in your community area or in your local work. It might be how dinner is going around your, your family at home. You know, what do you want that to look like? Whatever behaviour you see somehow is being rewarded. So 
we have a choice. Once you know that you're rewarding the behavior and it's not, you can do nothing about it, we actually have a choice. And at community level, we have a lot of input. So we need to ask and think about what is it that we want our community to be? So do we want something, you know, like a, a landscape where we're not quite sure what's safe and where we're going? Or do we want to actively shape something which is highly connected and highly committed and highly integrative? Because we can actually do that when we start stepping into asking what we need to do about that. What would it look like and how do we get there? One of the things then is that the power of small actions is really critical. So again, as a systems um, engineer, that, that butterfly effect of doing something very little and it having a really large effect has a technical background, but we know in the situations of how we feel that it matters a lot. So a couple of examples, if we go back to Helsinki in Finland, they top the lost wallet test every time. And it is an actual test that's done around the world of if you leave a wallet somewhere, will someone hand it in with the money? And they're, um, they're the highest. One of the other things, the next things in there, is social trust. And what you get um, once you have trust across a system is that they trust the the honesty of the laws around so they don't have viable where you are supposed to do the right thing and manners and values are really important in countries like that so if we go back to um the last time i was in finland you see these really cute little uh, cartoons and what they look at is the polite ways that the dilemmas of things like being polite and not wanting people to feel like they're being left out. And so that that implied value and that social trust means that over time you get this beautiful exponential effect and it's really powerful because it, the quality of life and the social trust is really important and it really goes up. So the result is flourishment. What we end up with then is a community where we are engaged, we are connected, and we are resilient. We end up with a distributed capacity. So there's a lot more capability of people to be part of the decision-making and the action as well. People trust the process and each other. And without that, you don't go anywhere. So you can navigate that emerging journey together because you're looking for the bits to, to work together. You can manage risk and anxiety because people are in that process and we trust each other again, instead of their kind of, you know, report suspicious behavior. And we can celebrate unexpected benefits because there are some fantastic things we know that come out of any form of interaction and we can do that together. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.